Welcome to Season 4, Episode 9 of the Coaching Badges Podcast, brought to you with the support of our good friends at Player Stat Data. Thanks for listening in, folks. We really do appreciate the support. Joining me on the show tonight, as always, my mate and co-host, Mark Anderson. Always good to see you, fella. Tonight's episode has the usual news and war chest items, along with a cracking interview with vision development coach Zoe Wimshurst. We hope you enjoyed the chat as much as we did. So, Mark, to kick things off, what have you got for us from the world of sports news this week? Well, I suppose it's mostly football-related, Gav, even though the NBA start season has started in the States and I'm engrossed in the NFL with a mad weekend of games. It's mostly football-related. And I suppose with the breaking news in the last day or so of um, both Bobby Charlton passing away and then Bill Kenwright in Everton, I'm very in, like it's, I suppose people in Everton will have very strong opinions of Bill, Bill Kenwright. A lot of long-term fans will have opinions around he held on to that club and didn't do any 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 good towards the end, but he was still someone that was involved in Everton for donkey's years and did do an awful yeah. lot for that club. And then, of course, Bobby Charlton, who probably crosses the the whole echelon of sport and what he's done and and was appreciated by fans everywhere. So that's two things. Cup final coming up soon in Ireland. Can't wait for that. Bows and Pats, really interesting game. Manchester United with more takeovers and it looks like it's going to be a minority holding or, or whatever the, the newest frame is. So that's going to be an interesting to see how that pans out. Champions League is trundling along. I can't see anybody past, past Man City personally myself this year. And Postacoglu uh, going from a tin pot league down to another tin pot league and running right through the top. Yeah, that's really it from a football point of view. There was something else that popped into my head. You know, the ladies team in Ireland. And, oh, sorry, no, that's what it was. It wasn't the ladies team. It was Ireland getting custodial sentences from the next, is it the European or the World Cup? And I still managed to think that we'll fuck it up by qualifying anyway. One way or the other. So yeah, lots of the football world these days. Yeah, there's always something going on. It is sad to hear when anybody dies, but like th- those two people were certainly well known in the game. Whatever you think of them, it, it was very interesting to see the amount of people who came out about Sir Bobby Charlton in particular. You know, just hailing him as the greatest English player ever. So that's that's high praise. But yeah, very very sad to to hear of that news about Bill Kenwright. Literally only an hour ago or so, uh, I heard it. But I, I have to say, I'm pleasantly surprised at how well your man Ange. Pastakogu was doing. And every time I hear him speaking, I just grow in admiration for the guy. He just seems to be a very, very decent person. And he's straight talking. And but I like him. And and certainly and tell you guys, he is a top, to he's a top, top, top coach. Yeah. I read an interview when he went to Celtic and me at Celtic going, who is this guy? And kind of but as someone that always go, okay, something left field. I could actually like this. Yeah. I read I read an interview with Craig Bellamy, who does some work with the City Group who had said this guy was the real deal and had already been highlighted by the city group as someone of great interest for later on. So yes. this guy is a winner and has won everywhere and comes with this no bullshit um, mentality. So yeah, I, I, this guy, he can coach. He can, he's an incredible man manager. Um, and the biggest thing, I think he is so articulate in making something complex, very simple, yeah. which I think players absolutely love. Yeah, no. Listen, I, I've been been really, really impressed by him, and I have to say, I'll I'll continue to kind of just watch uh, and listen to him and try and learn from him. His team plays a good brand of football as well. In fairness, uh, yeah. and the Spurs players are certainly responding. It's nice to see, and I know it's only early in the season, but whatever nine, ten games in, that there's four or five teams in and around the top. I think that's good for the league. I think that's good for spectators that it's not just you know a one man show or one horse show. I still think it'll be interesting to see who'll keep pace with City over the course of a long season. They've they've proven time and time again that they can perform when they when they need to. But yeah, look, it's been a good start. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Interestingly, for all the talk about Saudi Arabia in recent months about the high profile players going over there and getting huge money, uh, a lot of the articles I read this week were about the fact that there's very little people going to the games. Like Gerard's team at the weekend played with under a thousand fans at the game. Like that can't be sustainable. You know, surely there has to be a model where it's self-generating and self-funding in terms of the money that goes into it. But yeah, just kind of watch this space. I think I, I think it's really interesting if you look and of course the cynic in me and, and I'm very much, as much as I love football or that, I love the politics and everything else with football. I get just as much out of that as well. I think it's interesting to see the way the World Cup has been, reward, has been awarded. Um, and you have to, if you, if you connect the dots and follow the line, you can see where the World Cup is going after the next one. And that's what this league is all about. It's all yeah. about sport washing and making it to breaking down these prejudices 
because I'm breaking down these barriers to make sport more accessible in countries that years ago were never being entertained. It, it's yeah. both sad and very dirty, the whole thing that's going on. Oh, One other thing yeah. you mentioned and thinking of the, the horrible side of sport is, and I've seen it again at the weekend, and Vinicius Jr. in Spain and Seville and the racist abuse that he took after only, what, six weeks, maybe eight weeks ago, when the same thing happened in a way, I think it was at Villarreal, and the Spanish FA doing little or nothing to kind of stamp this out in their grounds. And short of stadium bans and shutting down support, I don't know, they have to do something because it's, it is disgraceful, absolutely disgusting. Horrible. But sadly, mate, look, it's in keeping with a lot of other shit that's going on in the world at the minute. So, look, we might come back to that another day. I think you're right about the Saudi Arabian thing. Very interesting to watch that one. But, yeah, as I said, no doubt we'll we'll return to that down the line. Moving on to our guest slot and every episode, as you know, we tried to bring people on to offer a different perspective on the world of uh, sport or coaching just to increase our own knowledge and self-development. Tonight, we're delighted to be joined by Zoe Wimshurst to talk about the vision development in athletes and how that can help them in terms of their performance edge. As well as continuing to work directly with athletes and teams, Zoe now also uses her skills and experience as a chartered psychologist to help both businesses and individuals enhance performance through delivery of masterclasses and one-to-one performance coaching. So, Zoe, here, it's brilliant to have you on. You're very welcome to the pod. And um, we've been really looking forward to this chat. So just before we get into some questions, you might just give the listeners a little summary of your own coaching journey to date. Okay, good morning. Thank you for having me on. So my coaching journey started when I was relatively young. So I played junior international hockey. And one of the things that was kind of drilled into me as a player if you want to be the best type of player you've got to understand more about the game so my dad's a fantastic coach and he signed me up for some coaching qualifications so I did some hockey based coaching qualifications when I was 13 14 years old just to kind of develop my understanding of the game and that kind of led to my love of trying to look for improvements in wherever you can and really breaking the game down into the more technical aspects of it I then moved on and thought that my journey would take me to become a sports psychologist. That was my aim. But through my training and that, I kind of veered off on this path of being more performance vision and that vision coaching side of things. So that developed from there. Brilliant. Uh, funny, you, you said something interesting there because I uh, now with my coaching head on and I'm a lot older now and finished playing, when I look back and reflect, I would have loved to have started my coaching as a player a little earlier to help me understand the game a little more. I think that's very interesting. And I know now, thankfully, there's a lot of supports for players to start coaching while they're still playing. Whereas back in my day, it was very much you played as long as you could, and then you considered coaching. So a lot of us only really got into it in our 30s. Whereas I now see kids, you know, doing their PDP1s, PDP2s when they're, you know, 17, 18. And I definitely think it does give you a better understanding of the game. So that that's interesting. But really, we're, we, we'd love to learn more about, you know, what's involved in developing the eyes and the brains of athletes. That's obviously an area that you're you're an expert in. So it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit more about that. OK, so as I say my background comes from sports psychology. But when I was doing my training in that, I always knew I was more interested in kind of the experimental, what makes what separates the really elite from the novice and trying to look at things in a slightly different way. And I stumbled across kind of the cognitive perceptual side of psychology. So how people take in and process information and discover that that's something that can be trained and improved. Um, But it had never been very much, at least not widely considered in sport. It was something for people with deficits, people who'd had brain damage, so how they could retrain areas of the brain to make them work more efficiently. So this was something I became really interested in, in terms of how you could use this to enhance sports performance, because our brain is really plastic in that it's malleable and will change. So everything that you do, all the stresses and strains that you put upon your brain will lead to new connections being formed and strengthened. And everything you don't do very much means that those connections in the brain will slowly fade away and die. So it's about training your brain and particularly in my case, the visual aspects of the brain to enhance and speed up those connections so that you can process information more quickly and more effectively. Well, I I think we're only going to scratch the surface here. I think we need to dig into this a little bit more. Typically, could I ask, what age would you recommend that, you know, athletes begin this type of training? 
I would say it should be from a coach's perspective embedded right from the beginning of when people take up the sport because it's so much easier to train young players when they're coming into the sport to be thinking about where they're gathering information from instead of having young players come in and start off and just watch the ball encourage them to look around the pitch get their head up look to the appropriate places scan because then it becomes second nature to them it's much harder to embed it in people once they're older and once they're starting to reach those higher levels it can be done but it's much harder whereas those players that you see that it's embedded in from the very start it does become second nature and it's something they then don't need to think about and can focus on other areas and it will give them that advantage over those players who aren't doing that to start with that's incredible just something that jumps out to me there like when you were saying about starting coaching that early on do you think that's something that the really best athletes and players have that already built in and hardwired into their brain or and that everybody maybe has that and just hasn't activated it yet so my personal belief is that everything to do with your brains and your physical abilities are based on your prior experiences i don't there's i think there's a very very small percentage that you know you're born with i think generally people tend to overestimate how much is just natural I think that most of it comes from experience, but those experiences can be really early, really basic experiences. So, you know, the physicality of being out there riding a bike through the forest, avoiding trees means you have to get your head up to look to avoid the trees as you're riding through a forest when you're a three-year-old on a balance bike. Um, Playing more sports is going to make you have to get your head up if you're playing as part of a team on things from an early age. So I don't think it's something that you're born with, but I do think it's something that will start to develop from as soon as you start moving around in the world, like I've got young children and I see it. And then from the start in terms of how they interact with their world and what you could do from that age just to help those interactions, to build those visual connections so that when they do then start playing sport, they already have that more freedom of not having to just focus on the ball because they're a bit more confident that they can, you know, take their head off, look around, think about their positioning on the pitch rather than just the swarm of small kids following a ball around. So, yeah, that would be my thoughts on that. That's fascinating. There's a few things you said there, and I just keep going back to something in my head. You said scanning and you said freedom and you said um, you, you kind of equated it to kind of kids being kids. So I'm going to go back and maybe I'm totally on a different tangent. So correct me if I'm wrong, because it, this this really fascinates me. If we talk about football as a sport that myself and Gavin know an awful lot, or well, sorry, pretend that we know an awful lot about um, and get boy. Um, and if you look at the conversations that happen in the mainstream media and our young coaches and our coaching clubs around the world, and they talk about the lack of street footballers and the lack of uh, our, our kids being overcoached now at certain ages in academies, do you think there's a correlation or you think there's a connection between, if you go back to, well, obviously, I'm a lot older than you. But uh, when I was growing up, you were out in the street more, playing street games. You were, you know, you had that more freedom. No social media, TVs and everything else, not as abundantly everyday access. That we developed more of those skills because of being out more as opposed to the younger kids now. So we're in effect playing catch up with athletes as we get them older to try teach them these skills. Yeah, I think so. But again, I think, you're right there. Can you, the teaching of those skills is really difficult because part of what I believe makes players really great is that creativity aspect. And some of that would come from being a kid out on the street, playing on uneven ground. So you're having to adapt to strange bounces. You know, you're not playing in your snazzy new football boots every time you've got your school shoes on. So the touch is going to be different because you're in different shoes all the time. You bounce it off a wall. You've got different kids. You're not in uniformed coloured kit so that you can tell really easily who's on your team but you have to get your head up and scan a bit more because you're looking for your mate's face rather than the shiny kit that he's wearing so I do think that we do run a risk of at the moment everything being handed to kids on lovely playing surface beautiful kit everything there and organized for them and they go out and they play their football or whatever sport it is and then they go home and they sit on their computer game playing for a while so everything is in a structured and organised environment, which I think will lose a lot of the creativity of kids being kids and just playing without a coach there trying to tell them anything. It's just the fun of playing. They're doing the things that they love. And again, particularly in football now, I think we see a problem where kids are playing football because they want to be a footballer and everything that comes with being a footballer instead of truly developing that love of the game 
and just wanting to play football regardless of where they're playing or whether they're getting paid money to play it. So, yeah, I think it's a really good point that that comes down to more coaching for them now instead of less coaching. And in some ways, less formalised coaching can be a really good thing. Zoe, you're over here in Dublin and I'm going to meet you for coffee because I think this could go on for hours. Sounds good. I just find it re- you really, really perked something in my head. Uh, something that I've been for years, like about coloured bibs and people being the same. And I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, have I got it wrong <laughs> in, in a certain way? And, and I remember someone saying to me uh, years ago, a really good friend of mine, a coach, Greg Robertson, who was on the podcast before, about every so often he liked the coaching chaos. Yeah. Absolutely. How the kids reacted. And that it could be carnage for the first five, 10 minutes, but they started to work things out. And you have, as a coach, have to be comfortable in that chaos. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing about coaching now is, again, particularly coaching in youth sports, you have half the parents there on the side of the pitch watching you and thinking, why aren't you telling my players, my child, what to do? Why aren't you coaching them when actually the best players and the ones that are going to develop their brain and their processing and their vision side of things are those kids who work it out for themselves? So sometimes the best coaching is, I love that, the creation of chaos, allow them to have the chaos and those that manage to figure it out, maybe just with some pertinent questioning from the coaches, rather than telling them everything, that is going to develop the players a hundred times better than putting out a drill for them to go from this cone to that cone and then this lovely finished shot under no pressure at the end of it. So I totally agree with where you're coming from there. That's, I really love that. Uh, honest to God, if you're a coach out there and you try and play a small side of game at the moment, say with no bibs, just look at the confusion on the players' faces. Mm. Because they're saying to you, what what, what team am I? Who are we playing against? Where's the yeah. bib? What colour am I? So, yeah, we have, I think, over-conditioned them to expect yeah. all of that stuff. That that's Listen, that's brilliant. You you definitely will fit into our grumpy old men group. Because that's the <laughs> kind of stuff we of moan about all the time. <laughs> listen, I'm very interested. I, I appreciate, you know, we're saying on the one hand, yeah, allow that chaos, mm-hmm. so which is great. But on the other hand, then, us trying to guide them to develop their eyes and their brains and their yeah. ears and all of that. Are there things that we can do say away or encourage them to do away from training like formal training and is it just go and be a kid or or is there things that we can help them with just to say right here's things you should try and start to get better at and i'm curious in that to help coaches understand well how can i help my players Hmm. to learn that way yeah so i think part of it is just encouraging them to be a kid but then again my view on what being a kid is is probably 30 years out of date for what being a kid is today so When we talk about being a kid, I mean things like going and throw a ball against the wall. Like I remember sitting for hours on a Sunday morning, just throwing a ball against the wall with my brother in the garden, really annoying my mum who was trying to sleep inside. But we'd invent all these different games of, you know, it had to bounce in this area or do this or do that. And that kind of thing, anything where you're playing with a ball is going to help develop some of these visual things, particularly like if it's really easy using a tennis ball, you can buy really cheaply reaction balls off Amazon where they just have funny bubbles on. Or I go scouring in toy shops and buy like buy rubber ball shaped like an egg or ones that are supposed to bounce or move in this way. So you're just varying things up a little bit. Yeah. I really encourage players to learn how to juggle because juggling is a really good thing. There are three balls there, so you can't physically watch all of them at the same time. and You can't watch them coming into your hand every time. So you're having to build up that peripheral awareness And once you're quite good at juggling, then I get players to do more things. So juggle whilst you're just following someone else's movement or even just while you're watching TV. So it's distracting you from what you're doing here and having to open up and you get more confident with your body and your senses. And then that will transfer over onto on the pitch performance instead of having to concentrate all the time, all the balls coming to me. Where does my foot or my stick or my racket need to go to exactly meet it? You have that confidence that you can be looking ahead to for the next pass or where your opponent has moved to. I love that. But I think back in season one, good friend of the show, good friend of ours, Mick Brown, was on as a guest. Mick often used to do rondos with a football on the ground and a tennis ball in the air. Love that. So you had to throw the tennis ball around as well as moving the mm. ball around. It, was, it took the players a few minutes to get their head around what was going on. Yeah. But all of a sudden you started to see them being aware of both footballs, a ball and tennis ball. 
yeah scanning more and they're looking around and they're aware now that there's two things they have to watch so yeah I, I think that's absolutely brilliant brilliant yeah point. one of the exercises I quite like doing is just in a small match situation but having two balls so you'd have an orange ball and a white ball and you start off just with the two balls to play with because then you're having to scan for two different things then you make it that one team can only score with the orange ball and the other team can only score with the white ball because then not only do you have to scan for two balls but you have to think as well okay so if my team get the white ball, we can't score with it. So what's the best thing we can do with that ball to help advance our team to stop the other team scoring? So that ball then just becomes about possession for you, whereas the other ball you get it and you're trying to go and score. And so there's various things to introduce like that. So it's still all just game-related play, but adding in elements of having to look more for specific things, but also then use your brain to think, what should I be trying to do with this now I have it? Yeah, I think we do. I think we do young kids um, a disservice by thinking that they can't work things out and things yeah. are too structured. So I'm fascinated that you do so much and your work is really, really interesting. Give me can you give me a typical week or a typical day, what kind of work and what you're actually doing um, and who you're kind of working with, if you don't mind. Yeah, so it does vary all the time um, because some of the athletes I work with I'll see once a year. For a screening, a checkup. So I would, for example, go and see um, later on this week, I'm seeing a motor rating athlete. So they're coming to me. Um, so I work at a university as well. So I work at ACC University College in Bournemouth, um, where I lecture in sports psychology. Um, so I'm there probably two days a week on campus there lecturing. Um, but so I might have an athlete come and see me do a screening for half a day or something like that to just check that. The basic underlying processes are working okay sorry, with them. Sorry, explain to me what you mean by a screening. Okay, so the same as um, a footballer might have a physical screening before they join a club to make sure that they don't have any, you know, like their hamstrings are particularly weak and likely to injure, um, that they are they have the basic sprint speed to enable them to play in the way that the club wants to. So for a vision screening, I would test things like um, how wide their peripheral vision is how good their hand-eye coordination is, how quickly their eyes can move and pick up information. So there's a range of different tests that I would do, which is quite generic. It would be very similar across most sports. Some of them I alter a bit to make more specific, but it's about testing those underlying what I call visual capabilities. Because if you can't move your eyes rapidly from one point to another and take information in, there's no point a coach telling you to scan and expect you to see all these things because you don't have those capabilities. So you need to then work on the capabilities to improve them before you can do what the coach wants. And the same with peripheral vision, the size of peripheral field you have will impact on what you can then go in and do on the pitch. So that's the basic screening. So I would um, be working on those. I do a mentoring scheme. So I might have a meeting or two with different coaches during the week to check in on what they've been doing, how their coaching sessions have gone, maybe talk about the ideas that they've had and help them to develop ideas to integrate the vision more into what they're doing as part of their role and um, I might see um I might go into one of the teams that I'm working with for a morning where I would again usually in the teams it's a mixture between working with individuals so it might be through the screening that we've identified an individual who maybe is slightly lower in some of the areas so they need some off the pitch training to improve that um, and also as well working with the coaches to see how they're embedding vision within as much as possible of what they're doing, working with strength and conditioning coaches to see that, you know, you're putting the athletes under extreme physical pressure, but what's the visual system doing while they're doing that? Can you just have their eyes doing something while they're doing these reps? So really making sure that vision is integrated into everything that is happening. And also as part of a typical week, I'm also, I also do research. So I run, I'm running various different research projects at the moment, because for me, really important that the work that I do and that I'm encouraging others to do is based on science and so the best way to get that science done is to do it myself um so at the moment for example I'm doing a research project with the International Biathlon Union and um, they funded some research I'm doing looking at which visual skills are most important for shooting as an aspect of biathlon I'm doing another project using an eye tracker so I um, use an eye tracker it's like a pair of glasses but it can tell exactly where the eyes are looking so it films what you're looking at and then you get a little circle to show the exact point that the person's eyes are focused on. So at the moment, I'm doing a project with coaches and where they're looking when they're coaching. Because, for example, you see um, been watching some of the local hockey trials for the county team near where I live because my niece is involved. And you see the coaches there. They have half a day with 45 athletes on one pitch. 
there are some of those athletes that they are never going to look at. And then they have to make a decision at the end of the day, is that athlete cut or are they in the squad? And it's such a bad way of doing things. And so I'm trying to do some research to prove that that is not how we should be running trials and affecting the future of these athletes. So, yeah, so the research side of things as well. So a huge mixture. There is no typical week for me. It all is really, really varied, but that's part of why I love it, doing different things all the time. Myself and Gavin, if you have put those uh, glasses or goggles on those, if you, myself and Gavin have been known to look up to the sky in despair many a time. Do you know, I've had to feedback to coaches and say, because I code all the information, so it's like when you're looking at people on your team or the other team or the ball or space, and then there's this what I call irrelevant information, but it's exactly that coaches gazing off in despair or some of them and it's like are you looking at the sky because that's your thinking time or are you just daydreaming and trying to work out and but show it back to the coach saying you know what in this match a third of the time you were looking at the sky yeah. is that necessary and, and so part of it is just educating the coaches because they've got no idea and like you think that you're watching the game all the time but actually it can be really different from what you think you're looking at oh, listen I, I'm, I'm telling you we could definitely talk for days about this um, <laughs> Funny, that is a, a hugely underestimated and important skill, observation and coaches, just to learn how to watch properly. Yeah. Uh, you, you've mentioned some amazing stuff there, right? And I have so many questions jumping into my head. But I'm curious. So you yourself now are kind of leading this charge about helping to develop athletes' vision. And so are there other people in your field that you admire? So this is a really relatively new and developing area I'd say the one person who came before me that really pioneered this is a woman called Dr Cheryl Calder who's a South African and she worked mostly in rugby and golf but lots of other sports as well and she worked with the England rugby team when they won the World Cup back in 2003 and so it was her that kind of led that charge and I then worked with Clive Woodward after her because he wanted to develop kind of more of this Um, so she definitely started this field but it is now growing more so I do see the next kind of batch of people starting to come through so there's a few people who are posting some really good stuff on LinkedIn they tend to be I think I'm probably quite a generalist in terms of where I do the research and the applied practice and I see more other people more either just focusing on the eye tracking route which is a hugely fantastic tool to be using or you'll get people quite often from an optometrist background, trying to focus on those basic underlying sports things. I like to think that I'm in quite a good position having been a a pretty reasonable athlete and obviously having the scientific background to kind of sit across all of the areas. But yeah, it's definitely a developing area and there's some fantastic people coming through attempting to work in this field, which I think is brilliant. The more people who do it, the better that it's going to be for sport in general. I actually remember, now that you say it, I never put it together before. I remember Clive Woodward been talking about this visual tracking and helping his players yeah. back then, but also remembering a lot of people kind of laughing and going, what's he doing? Like, that's nothing got to do with rugby. And that's yeah. only 20 years ago. So, like, where do you think this has evolved over that last 20 years? Funny, sorry, before you answer, I remember Mark talking to Philly McMahon and him saying 10 years ago, if players were carrying around journals, scribbling down notes, people thought they were crazy. Whereas now all of these things are pretty commonplace. Yeah. But where where has your field evolved, you know, over the last decade or so? So I would say it's been relatively slow in developing. I think the research side of things is definitely improving. The improvements in technology like the eye trackers. So I can put an eye tracker on someone in a training session now and it's not too intrusive. Like you can do a contact session with it on. Um but it's possible to get that insight into what players are looking at. So that has developed on and the research looking at differences in how experts would read the game to novices is definitely advanced on. I would say that we're still lacking a lot in the applied side in terms of those underlying visual capabilities. It's really difficult to research into those because it's so individual. And if you want to get stuff published in a scientific journal, generally, you've got to have had big groups through different things and so I think that's where the applied world needs to take it further have more people embedded within your club who will assess these things will be able to guide you on or you're trying to get this player to do this thing but they're never going to be able to do it because their visual system will not allow them to do that yet and at the moment I think there's kind of a lack of understanding between well a player just doesn't have that technical ability instead of breaking down instead of just trying to drill them over and over and over in that thing think about well what could be the underlying causes of that and quite often vision would be 
the underlying cause of a lot of problems that coaches would see. So I think we need education on things like that more to help coaches understand, you know, that's where I need to get a vision expert in to be able to help me to work with players on those areas. That's, that's incredible. It, it, and, and like, I mean, we could talk about how performance coaching has evolved over the years and I could ask your opinion and all that. But I think consider that you're at the cutting edge of something new. I would rather ask you about like, as a coach, maybe in a grassroots club, no matter what sport, is there quick, easy wins or stuff that we could be looking at or stuff that you could even recommend to our listeners about as early stages to start looking at or looking or, or researching some certain things? Because I'm conscious as well, there's an awful lot of people that listen to this podcast that are coming home from work in their car, getting out, changing at the club, running out with a cup of coffee and have a load of 12-year-olds. And they're doing an amazing job at grassroots mm-hmm. level to develop young people. What can they do really quick, simple, easy tasks if that's even if there is anything that kind of maybe they can start thinking about this? Because the more I listen to you, Zoe, the more I think, how is this not being taught in all these coaching badges? Why are we not having these discussions? Or maybe they are at all these clubs. Why are eight and nine-year-olds are we not giving these simple, basic exercises to coach to do? Because, I mean, I, I, I just think I'm blown away. I, I really am blown away of something so simple that could have such an impact. I completely agree. And I do, like, one of my missions is to try and get, because obviously I work across loads of different sports, but to get sports like the FA, trying to embed this on the coaching badges from a young age, because we're going to create so many better players if this is, something that we're thinking about from the grassroots level upwards from as soon as those kids start playing football, it's just going to then develop through. So what I would say to those coaches who are, you know, going out to coach young players tonight, just think about what you're asking them to do. Are there anything that that you've planned for your session already? What times are you forcing your player to not look at the ball? Because the most of the time, most of the drills, most of the exercises, a player could get away with doing them just fine just by watching the ball and that is not going to help them develop anything any type of game sense at all something that's developed a lot in football over the last couple of years there's been some fantastic research coming out of Scandinavia a researcher called Gia Jordet done lots of work on scanning in football but the problem is that his work has shown that the best footballers particularly in those centre midfielder roles are the ones who scan more but the message that's trickled down is just we need to get our players to scan more So you'll now see coaches standing on the side saying scan and the players on the pitch, you'll see kids just waving their heads side to side doing and the coaches think that that's scanning because they're not looking at the ball, but actually they're not looking at anything useful to help them gain information. And I can look and say, like, you need to be focused on something for around 200 milliseconds or your brain doesn't process it anyway. So waving your head around, I know you're not taking in anything at all, but the coach thinks all of a sudden you're going to be the next Lionel Messi because you're scanning according to them shaking the head looks great yeah so I would say again to coaches think where do you want your players to scan to what is going to be useful information so give them something to do so for example um in a small-sided game you know put one player on the other team in a different colored bib or don't need a bib just identify that one player and say as soon as that player is outside of the middle of the pitch I want you to do that because again it simulates what they might come up against in a game a really good opposition player that you want to drag out of position and then you can counterattack down that side to just give them something relevant. Try and scan every time you see the goalkeeper step outside their six-yard box. You know, just give me a signal or something to see that you've seen it because you're having to scan ahead and see where those people are on your team. If you're a right back, I want you to always know where your right midfielder is. So if at any time... I stop the game, you'll be able to point straight away to where your right midfielder is because that's who I want you to pass the ball to most often. So it's about developing the patterns of how you see your team wanting to play. And that might be different for every team, but it's helping players to understand that it's not about waving your head around scanning. It's about precise specific movements that are going to help you be able to play your best game listen listening to you it sounds so practical and simple but sometimes it isn't applied i know it's not you mentioned the, the waving the head around that definitely <laughs> pet hate is there any other little pet hates in your in your field that you see or that you observe you know when you're looking at coaches that you'd like to say god i wish i could fix that or help them with that 
Oh, um, a lot of the stuff we've kind of touched on already. I think the scanning in football in particular, I would say from a research side of things, I think at the moment what I'm trying to educate more people about is that how to explain it. I think if you think in terms of vision, there's different levels of it. So there's what I call the visual capabilities, which are linked to those optometric properties. So how big your peripheral vision is, how well you can still see things when you're running, how quickly you can move your eyes. And then there's the next level above that, which I call visual skills which are things like how well you can anticipate what's going to happen next, how good your game sense is. So those things are more sports specific. There's lots of research at the moment to show that these visual skills, the more sports specific ones, can actually make a really big difference if you implement them in a game and particularly at the higher level. But there's a big ignoring of the underlying visual capabilities. People tend to think that, oh, well, that, that because we can't see big differences, you know, because if I test every premiership footballer for their peripheral field and every non-league footballer, there's going to be no real differences in the groups between their peripheral vision. But that's not to say that if I had a premiership footballer and I could increase his peripheral vision by 10 degrees, it wouldn't subsequently improve his game. He might be at the top of his game because he's a particularly fast, speedy winger and his distribution isn't something that he's ever really worked on. And I think we tend to just write off those visual capabilities as being, eh, You've got what you've got. Let's work with it. Instead of thinking you could be such a better player if you could scan to an extra two places in a second. So you can scan to five places instead of three. Think of the options that would open up. And it is very specific. And that is the kind of thing that needs to be done on an individual level and probably at the higher level of the game. Those visual skills, the sports specific stuff is going to be the bigger win. But I definitely think that at the high level of the game, we should be considering those underlying capabilities much, much more instead of just writing them off as "Eh, you've either got it or you haven't. That's like saying, well, you can either sprint fast or you can't sprint fast. We never say that. We work on players to help them sprint faster. But with vision, it seems to just be written off a little bit. I think there's a lot of that in football where you hear people regularly saying he's a natural. Maybe he is, but maybe he could be better. Yeah. I'm interested about that. I'm, I always, I, I was a, a defender. I, I absolutely idolized Paul McGrath. People for years who say, God, he reads the game so well. So I'm interested to hear you talk about that visual mm. skill in terms of assisting with anticipation. Yeah. So were they linked? Because like McGrath looked like to me, someone who always seemed to know where the ball was going. Did he absolutely. just recognize patterns quicker? Or Yeah. And that is a, a visual skill is that pattern recognition. So he would have been confident in scanning to certain specific places so you know what's going to happen because you've identified that okay the opposition have pushed the balls over here but they've pushed their winger high and wide or infield and deep so you know what then is more likely to happen so you're able to step in and adjust to the changes that they're making if you're only focused on the ball over this side you've got no awareness of what the players on this side of the field are doing how are you going to be able to read the game so it's about being one step ahead but you're one step ahead because you've seen how they're setting up and going to get into position and you recognize those patterns, possibly particularly at the higher level. You may have done your homework as well, identified the tactics of the opposition and done all that analysis on when they do this, they're obviously looking for this kind of a setup. So yeah, it's all about the vision, pattern recognition and all of those things which are linked to the work which I do. There's just something that Gavin's there, but there's something I'm a big fan of American football. I'm also a big fan of neuroscience and that whole how you're and we still love you, Mark, and we still love you despite your love of the NFL. I love it. And and I'm just wondering, like, I mean, and there's a lot of people dismiss that game, but that game, the the NFL American football is one of the most complex games around Mm. the plays. And I watched a couple of documentaries on the quarterbacks specifically. I just watched that same one. The amount of plays that they have to memorize and everything else. But I'm also, they seem to watch for a sport that's a field sport, similar to rugby and everything else. The amount of film they watch on opposition. And obviously that's, or, or am I wrong in saying that's probably part of that visual training for them to identify patterns and to identify. And video is used a lot in football, but probably not in the same way. It's more, yeah. Related. am I wrong? Yeah, I th- absolutely. I think it's really interesting to think about how we do use video footage because at the moment, what I see most use of video footage being is that coaches will show a video back to players of a match that they've been in where the filming has been from up here in the stands and the coach is looking at it going, well, why didn't you make this pass? But the view you get from up in the stands is hugely different from the view you have on the pitch. And so they're not really understanding that, you know, you just couldn't, that's not what the setup looks like in front of you when you are on the field. 
I was at a premiership football club earlier in the season and they were telling me about how they're setting up their training ground so that they might be able to actually have more of a player's eye view wherever the player is on the field so you can analyse it from a position which is suitable for those players. And I think that's fantastic because, again, at the moment, what the coach sees and what the player sees, particularly if you're just watching that high-up video back, is so different. Um, And so if you're just using it to critique players for not seeing things, then it's completely the wrong way of using it because there is no way that that equates to what a player sees. But I do think that there is a use on it in terms of trying to identify the patterns that opposition are likely to be doing um, and then working on that. So instead of just using it as a, why aren't you doing this, showing it to them off the pitch, the coach should go away, take it all in and then set it up on the pitch so that the players are seeing it from the right perspective. Going, okay, so we're looking for, if this player is going here, how are you able to still be able to see where they are while they're seeing the ball over here? How can you adjust your body position? Because this is what we expect the opposition to be starting to do. So I definitely think there is a place for a lot of video analysis, but I think most of it should probably be the coaches watching it and then setting it up on the field as opposed to much direct feedback to players because the systems just don't work to make it suitable for them. That's amazing. Funny, I I saw this year for the first time a lot of more almost like body cam type footage Mm. players in games because the view obviously from a player's perspective is totally different yeah i think that could be something that maybe comes into the game obviously with money probably from the top down but um yeah interesting i'm conscious of your time zoe in fairness you've been you've been absolutely brilliant and as i said i think we're only scratching the surface here you've got us both thinking about so many different things i'm curious to know so you know, we're working with players and have done over the last number of years and uh, they're at various stages of their journey. What advice would you give an athlete who's, you know, just beginning, they've been introduced to yourself, you're going to try and help them and, and work with them. What kind of advice would you give them in terms of, you know, how they're going to interact with you? Um, I would say that it's really important that at the end of the day, I want to be able to take myself out of the job. I want to educate the player enough for them to be able to understand what they're doing so it's about for them identifying when they're having a good game versus a bad game where are they looking at various times and having that kind of metacognition the knowledge of the knowledge so what do you know about yourself and what do you not know about yourself and how can you find that out and obviously from my perspective most of it comes down to the vision um in terms of where are you looking what is going to help you what type of runs of your forward players do you think that you see and you pick up more and therefore, can you, you know, help the other players make runs so that you're going to be able to see them better? And so it's about developing that confidence and that knowledge of themselves to then be able to go and search for the help that they need. So it might be to come and see me because they recognize that their vision isn't quite how they want it to be. Or it might be something completely different that they want to do. But I would say that from with my psychologist kind of hat on, that's the best thing for any young and developing player is to really try and understand and analyze themselves to then be able to go out and seek the help and support that they might need. But they have to be the expert on themselves. You can't expect your coach or your physio or anyone else to come in and know you better than you know yourself. You need to be self-directed in what you need to do because then you'll be able to push yourself to the best that you can be. I'm going to get the T-shirt players need to be the expert on themselves. I think it it goes for all of us across everything, not just in sport as well. Like Know your own strengths and weaknesses and then you can work to them. Yeah, so, um, I, I, I'm only sorry I haven't come across you your work uh, ten years ago because oh, I think I could have changed an awful lot about my approach and what I thought. And it's um, yeah, it, it, it's it's actually really really intrigued me and provoked so many questions and thoughts in my head. I think, I think you should be made speak at every young football conference, even to get people thinking a little bit different. And that's one of the beauties that we why we did this podcast. The guests that we get are just like gold dust. Um, and I hope people look. But I have a, a question for you. What's your own coaching philosophy? Like, I mean, because we ask coaches that and we get various different answers. But for someone that is doing something very different, probably at the start of the journey in this kind of coaching, what's your own philosophy around coaching? So that's really difficult. I don't necessarily know from a coaching perspective, the technical correct words to use for it. I would say that I'm very person-centered. That's more of a psychology term than a coaching term. And I like to see everyone on an individual level and their well-being has to be the primary thing. Like out of all the people that I coach and see, okay, I'm probably one of the lucky ones that a lot of them are at the high level anyway. 
but it's far more important to me that they are decent human beings rather than that they excel at their sport. So it has to come from there to start with. So if a player comes to see me to work on some vision things, but I identify that today is just not a day for that, then I'll do what I can to make sure that they leave the room in a better place than they came in, whether it's to do with their vision or to do with them as a person. So I would say that that's kind of my philosophy on the whole of life. Like vision is, the, is what I specialize in, but the actual human person, and this probably isn't what I would say pre-COVID. I think COVID changed a lot of things about the way that most of us see the world that we're in. But I like to think that actually having healthy, well-rounded people is better than having a high-performing athlete. Yes, that's probably not the coaching answer, but I would say that that's kind of the underlying most important thing in anything that I would be doing. I think that's the perfect answer because if we can't apply that type of approach in our coaching, we won't be good coaches because at the end of the day, the more we all do this and the more we speak to people, it's always about the people. It keeps keeps coming back to that and everyone we speak to and it just seems to resonate with people that it is about the people. Like you will, whether it's work or life or sport or otherwise, you know, if you get those connections, people buy into what you're trying to do more, yeah. or really, really try and, and help each other more. So, no, I think that's a brilliant answer. I said, look, I'm very conscious of your time, but nobody leaves this show uh, without picking their dream fantasy five-a-side team, Zoe. Ooh. So it's entirely up to you. Uh, they don't have to be footballers. They can be people from the world of sport or people from the world of education or whatever. It's entirely up to you. So who would make your dream fantasy five-a-side team, Zoe? Oh, this is really interesting. Um, they better all okay. have good vision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they better all have good vision. So I guess I'll start off with Lionel Messi in there because he is kind of outstanding vision Absolutely. for everything that he's doing. Um, I would put in there... Um, I think Leah Williamson um, from the Lionesses. I think she's got fantastic vision. So I'm probably going to end up with lots of centre midfielders kind of in that that position that kind of leads to more Jude Bellingham. He's another one at the moment. He has that spark of creativity in there as well, which, you know, is really, really fantastic. Um, Possibly Beth Mead as well for that creativity and that attacking flair going forwards. Fantastic. Do I need to have a goalkeeper in there? Oh, <laughs> Mark would say no. Many others would oh. say yes. So it's entirely up to you. I'm going to go for mm, creativity wise and vision wise, just because I use a player cam video of him a lot in my um, presentations that I do. Frank Lampard, um, oh, he's does really good vision and scanning. There's some really good examples of how Beautiful. he does that. So, yeah. So give us that again. So Messi. Messi, Jude Williamson. Bellingham, Williamson. Oh, I've forgotten now. So Messi, Bellingham, Williamson, Bellingham, Beth Mead, Beth Mead Frank, Lampard. Frank Lampard. Fantastic. Yep. Great balance, great vision. A oh. lot of midfielders. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you probably concede a few with no keeper, but however, however. It's not <laughs> all exciting football. to watch. <laughs> you wouldn't get, get to get the football off them. I don't think you could see it very much at all. Yeah. I have to say, you, Bellingham is probably the most exciting player I've seen in a long time. Yeah. In terms of his all-round ability and the kind of person he seems to come across as, as a very yes. person. So I think that ties in nicely with your philosophy. But yeah, look, that's a brilliant team. But Zoe, look, again... Thank you so much for taking the time to our listeners. It's very early in the morning. Zoe has been absolutely brilliant. I've thoroughly enjoyed that chat. Mark is brilliant at, you know, finding guests and coming up with guests. And and sometimes I go into these chats. I have no idea where it's going to take us. (laughs) But I really, really enjoyed that. And there's so much. You've mentioned a couple of names there that I want to go and learn a little more about. I certainly want to look more in terms of that whole field of what mm. you're doing in terms of vision development and performance coaching. So thank you. And we'll, we'd love to keep in touch and, and follow your coaching arc and uh, hopefully chat to you somewhere down the line. Um, but yeah, thanks so much and, and uh, continued success with what you're doing. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. I can think of no better way to start a morning than having a really great chat about all the things that I love. So thank you very much for having me on. It's been brilliant. So on to the war chest and uh, every episode, as you know, Mark will bring us some recommendations of books or documentaries or stuff like that just to supplement our own learning and development. So, Mark, what have you got for us in the war chest this week? I've got something that will both at different ends of the spectrum, something that may supplement your learning and development, something that's brain numbingly untaxing to watch, but it's actually quite a good watch. I watched the David Beckham episode uh, on Netflix, the, the, all the episodes together, and I watched it on Saturday because it was pissing rain and there was no <laughs> football or anything else to go and do. Um, and my wife watched it with me, which is probably 
let me tell you how appealing it is. Uh, interesting behind the scenes and someone that, do you know what, even if you watch it for just to see the abuse that he took after his sending off against Argentina. Oh, it was shocking. How it affected him and also like that. And also the other side of it, you know, what really, 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 really stood out to me, the whole thing, it's a lovely, it's, it's a great thing to watch. It's very easy to watch. It's sanitized in its own way. But I thought the biggest thing is people like him who are so driven, how selfish they are yeah. in everything and how no matter what family and everything else, what they say, their careers and their comes first. Everything they do comes first and everything else pays a second to it. So when it's when he's retiring and he takes another club, when he moves to LA, moves to Milan, and when he gives up, moves to PSG, all when they get settled and everything else. It just it's a real it's a real insight into the very, very best how they behave and how that pursuit of relentlessness is still there no matter what stage of the career. Yeah. No, I, I did actually watch that myself. Thoroughly enjoyed it too, mate. I have another book, which is the total under end of the spectrum called Outliers, the story of success by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, best-selling author of Blink and The Tipping Point. He tells the story of success and he uh, overturns controversial wisdom about the genius to, uh, I suppose, to show what makes an ordinary person an extreme overachiever. Like he's gone from rock stars, athletes, but software billionaires, scientific geniuses to show the story of their success. Um, and it's very, very interesting, a fascinating read, actually. Um, and it, it, it delves into stories, anecdotes and uh, examples of, you know, what it takes to succeed again. And um, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a phenomenon, he's a superb author. So, yeah, really, really good book to check out. And, and the other one, uh, given all the, given that we're in that time of year and coming towards the end of the World Cup, one that that, that someone uh, actually mentioned to me, it's um, a guy called Steve Thompson and Unforgettable. Um, and it's, a, it's his own personal memoir of uh, the World Cup rugby player. And he talks about his life-changing diagnosis of onset dementia and stories that are contributed by his teammates and former managers as he would affect on his career. So a somber read, but a very, uh, very strong, warm message in it as well. Excellent. I, I definitely will check that out. couple of brief things myself on your recommendations. I have been listening to Diary of a CEO and it's it's excellent. I love the breadth and scope of the guests and the stuff that he gets into, which is really interesting. It's Steve Bartlett for anybody who hasn't checked it out yet. Highly recommend it. But I started his Diary of a CEO book uh, over the last few days. Very interesting. It's 30 something lessons for for life and business. So, you know, it's uh, I'm only I'm only really at the start. I've only heard two lessons so far, but it's an easy listen, easy read. So uh, you'll definitely get something from it. And you mentioned earlier, you know, the kind of the dirty side of sport and all in keeping with that. Watched the documentary during the week on Netflix called Bad Sport. It's six different stories that kind of look at how sports and crime somehow come together. Uh, and it's kind of told from the perspective of the athletes and the coaches and, and the law and the police and all that officials that got pulled into the center of these controversies. So, yeah, really worth a look. And um, there is a dark side to sport, as, I'm, as I think we all know. But this just kind of sheds a light on a couple of stories to do with that. So, yeah, really good stuff, mate. I'll do. Excellent. That's it, folks. The end of season four, episode nine. We hope you got something out of it. My thanks, as always, to Mark and the team at Playerstat Data for helping us get this show on the road. Really do appreciate your support, guys. Huge word of thanks to our guest, Zoe Wimshurst. A brilliant, brilliant chat, and we wish you nothing but continued success, Zoe. I think it's a fascinating field and, and an emerging and evolving field. We'll, we'll certainly watch that space with keen interest. Thanks to everybody also who joined us for the recent squad session where we talked about all things attacking. If you haven't heard about it already, check it out. Our next session is planned for november 30th where we aim to talk about all things defending it's been brilliant meeting new coaches and working with the guys at sunday share just to get this initiative up and running you know getting coaches in a room talking about coaching is just fantastic we'll be back next month with some more chat and discussion get in touch with us as always on twitter at coaching badges stay safe and remember when it comes to coaching there's no right or wrong way but there's always a better way